Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club, where Vivian Dudo, our star commentator, oh. myself, Father Fessio, and Joseph Pierce continue to discuss the spirit of liturgy by Joseph Carl Ratzinger. We ended up last time not completing uh, the last chapter of Part 2. Part 2 is on time and space and liturgy. The last chapter is on sacred time. And uh, Ratzinger here speaks about the sanctification of the day of the week and with, with the Sabbath and of the year with feasts. But we ended up uh, manifesting our confusion and ignorance uh, last session because we were fairly certain that the Orthodox Easter is not on the same date as the Latin Easter. However, both of them calculate Easter as the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And since that day every year is exactly the same for everybody, how can it be that the Easter in the Orthodox Church is sometimes or almost always a different date from the date in the Western Church? And the answer is because they're still using uh, the Julian calendar, and we use the Gregorian calendar, and those calendars are 13 days off, that they calculate, they don't calculate the Verlican rocks. They use March 21st as the date, no matter what's happening with the moon, you know. And so that's the reason why the Easter celebrated different dates. They're not looking at the vernal equinox. They're looking at March 21st. Okay. So that was interesting to find that out. Um, also, uh, an interesting factoid here for cocktail party is that uh, Teresa of Avila was never born because <laughs> when they shifted from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, they cut out 13 days. Among It was in 1571, when she was born. Uh, so they cut out the days which included her birth date. <laughs> Well, I told you last week that I was telling everybody for years that Shakespeare and, and Miguel de Cervantes died on the same day because it was St. George's Day, um, uh, 1616, until someone pointed out to me that actually at that, that time, England was still refusing to use the Gregorian calendar because it was anti-papist. So oh. uh, actually, they were actually born, that they died 13 days apart, although it was both on the feast of George. All right, so we're on page 114 slash 100. I refer to the pages of the commemorative edition here, uh, which is the latest one. And the original edition here, my, my beat up one, which is underlined very copiously. Uh, so in the middle of page 114, we read uh, that we should also say the Jewish tradition gave the date of March 25th 
to Abraham's sacrifice. As we shall presently see, this day was also regarded as a day of creation. Very early on, also the day of Christ's death, and eventually the day of his conception. That was the day that a lot of symbolic meanings converged. And I only found this out some years ago, but uh, up until I think the Middle Ages, the year in the West began on March 25th. That was that was the first day of the new year. Mm. Yeah, now, I mean, for me, this was, this was all extra uh, ammunition because, you know, when I uh, speak about the Lord of the Rings, I put uh, you know, I, a great emphasis upon the fact that March the 25th is the Feast of Annunciation, which obviously Catholics at least know. But very few Catholics know that it's traditionally seen as the date of the crucifixion. But now, you know, also the date of the of creation, uh, the, uh, the, the the Jewish tradition, the date of Abraham's sacrifice, which obviously connects with uh, the crucifixion. Um, and then uh, I did know that in, in many countries in Europe, in the Middle Ages, it was also New Year's Day, which theologically, of course, makes much more sense than January the 1st, which is a random date in the middle of the Christmas season. Um so, uh, yeah, yeah. In, in, in happier times, we'd merrier times, we'd return to to March twenty fifth as New Year's Day. Would make all all sorts of sense. And again, uh, the connection with Tolkien is that Tolkien chooses March twenty fifth as the date on which the Ring is destroyed, thereby connecting the Ring synonymously with sin, which is also destroyed on March twenty fifth. So, and that unpacks the deep theology of of of, of Tolkien's myth. So, mm-hmm. it's all connected to Tolkien's knowledge, of course, of this. Medieval right. understanding and early church understanding of, uh, of 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 the significance of dates, and also the new creation. So, destruction of sin on Mount Doom, new creation. Of course, now in, in the church's year, we begin with the first Sunday of Advent, and I think that's a more meaningful way of dividing up the year. It really focuses on why the cosmos is meant. For history, that is, the whole reason we have these cycles is so we could have something into which we could insert the historical uh, reality of salvation history. The uh, 115, at the top, he wants to make two further remarks in the middle of the page. When the Sunday after the first full moon of spring comes to be the date of Easter, the symbolism of sun and moon are linked together. And this is typical Rasengarian, uh, how he sees into the symbolic meaning of ordinary things. Transitoriness, which is the moon, which waxes and wanes, is taken up into what never passes away, the sun. Death becomes resurrection and passes into eternal life. Finally, continuing the next paragraph, he says, we should add that for Israel, Passover was not simply a cosmic festival, but essentially aimed at historical remembrance. And we're going to see, we already see it in this book, that he he sees Christianity as uniting the cosmic and the historical, mm-hmm. creation and redemption. And from the very beginning, he sees the eight days of creation, seven days of creation as leading up to a day of a Sabbath, a day of rest. It's, it's there. God created the world in seven days so that at the eighth, seventh day after all of our work, we can turn to him, the author of it all. Um, I'm 
Hospital Roots, page 117. You can always interrupt me here for something in between. Uh, he brings up this interesting question. Well, wait a minute. You know, we, we celebrate Easter in the spring. It's very symbolic, new life and everything. That's, but that's because the uh, saving events took place in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. What, what about now that Christianity has reached to the South Africa, especially places earlier than that, like Australia, <coughs> South America? What about that? They celebrate Easter in the autumn time. So should should the, should Easter in the Southern Hemisphere be celebrated in the springtime down there, which would be our autumn, say September, something like that? Mm-hmm. He's going to say no, page 118, four lines down. But the historical does not serve the cosmic. So we don't we don't change the historical date because of the fact that in the cosmos, the Southern Hemisphere doesn't have spring when we do. <clears throat> to believe the Incarnation, a couple more lines, means to be bound to Christianity's origins, their particularity, and in human terms, their contingency. So it's a contingent thing that happened in the Northern Hemisphere. It happened, you know, on what we call Easter Sunday now. Uh, and that that's more important than the cosmos. History is. History fulfills the cosmos. And therefore... Uh, we shouldn't be changing to enculturate the Mass or the liturgical year uh, by changing the date of Easter for the Southern Hemisphere. And then he goes on at the bottom of that page, in the Passover of Jesus, there is, so to speak, a coincidence of Easter, spring, and the Day of Atonement, autumn. Christ connects the world's spring and autumn. Again, again, that's that's a, what do you call it, a creative thought. I've never seen that in the before, mm-hmm. but he's saying that now because we have Christianity in Southern Hemisphere, they can help us see more dimensions of what we've already been celebrating. Mm-hmm. The fact that Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, you know, which is a, in which the the, the the sin the sin is laid upon the head of the, the goat and sent out into the desert, you know. Uh, and a, uh, a woman I knew who was from Australia said this very thing that. On a personal level, yes, of course, she knows the history of where Christianity took place and why the liturgical calendar developed the way it did. But that, say, for example, the fact that they celebrate Lent during the autumn, well, it is a time of pruning and uh, old dying in order to make way for the new. Not a time of pruning, but it is a time of things... Corrupting, getting old, drawing, dropping from the trees at least. They actually prune in the wintertime when things are dormant. Well, you can't do that in some places. Can't do it in three feet of snow in Chicago. You, if you haven't pruned your trees by then, you're in trouble. Well, <laughs> but of course, in Australia, they don't have snow. But the point is, is that this time of things, things dying, it, seemingly dying and going dormant and right. going through a time of transition. So whether it's the fact is both spring and fall are times of transition, right? And so she was just enriching my understanding by saying that how they experience transition fits even though the seasons are reversed for them. Anyway, I'd never even thought about it before until she said that. And then when I read this here in Rotzinger, I thought, okay, so. She, she might have read the book. Maybe so. She was a good Catholic. I don't know. Onward, page 120, third of the way down or so. Uh, the theology of the Incarnation and the theology of Easter do not simply stand alongside each other. No, these are two 
the two inseparable focal points of the one faith in Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the incarnate Son of God and Redeemer. And so, again, he wants to link Easter and the incarnation, which is not the same as Christmas, although we saw about Christmas here, because the incarnation takes place, you know, March 25th, nine months before Christmas. Uh, bottom of the page, ten lines up. Having been recognized as a focal point of faith in Christ, the incarnation had to be given some expression in the liturgical celebration, some place in the rhythm of sacred time. So, you know, we didn't have all these feasts in the Christian church at the beginning. We had the Jewish feasts. And, of course, Passover was the Feast of Feasts, and that's the Feast of Feasts for Christians, too. But once you recognize the Passover, the crucifixion and resurrection as central, well, then you think, well, well what's connected to that? Well, one thing connected with that is, is when God becomes man, and that, that's, the, that's the incarnation. And when that human incarnation becomes manifest, I, mean, I think one reason Christmas is a holy day and March 25th is not, Oh, I think it should be. It's, it's an odd thing in the churches. There's 11 universal holy days. Different countries pick out ones they want for their country, but there's 11 of them. And it includes St. Peter and Paul and St. Joseph. Well, those are important feasts, but not as important as March 25th, in my view. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the moment at which the divine enters into the into the temporal, into the human. And it's, it's not, not a holy day. I mean, of obligation, it's a, it's a holy day for sure. Um, yeah, to me, to me, that's that's the biggest sort of sore thumb sticking out of the liturgical year. The fact that the Annunciation is not a holy day of obligation. That seems to me to be a sin of omission, uh, crying to heaven for rectification. Okay, but here I think, I'm just guessing at what the reason might be, is that the Incarnation is a hidden mystery. Mary keeps that within her. She ponders on that. The birth is when it becomes public. Uh, and so it's the public awareness and recognition. Like, we don't celebrate our conception day, even if we know it, you know, I'm, yeah, we know it, but I mean, I suppose you could. Uh, some cases, we celebrate our birthday. Well, why is that? Well, because that's when, you know, the child comes out from his womb. So, yeah, I agree with Joseph. Like, obviously, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with any of that, but certainly, you know, in, in the culture of death in which we find ourselves and the, and the widespread practice of infanticide, um, you know, that that a feast which would emphasize that the life of Jesus Christ began at his conception and not at his birth would actually be quite symbolically powerful in the culture in which we find ourselves, apart from any other theological reasons for, for wanting it. So on 121, he mentions again that uh, the 25th was considered to be the conception, but that was it, it got that way because they've had December 25th as his birth, so they subtracted nine months and figured it must be March 25th. That's the conception. Uh, page 122, towards the I, bottom. Actually, I, I, I do have a question on middle of page 121. I just want you to, you know, to discuss this because. We got, you know, this uh, from in AD 243 emanated from Africa. We find March 25th interpreted as the day of the world's creation. You know, and Chaucer in in, in the Canterbury Tower says that, the, that March was the month that the world was created. But obviously, in a, on a, in a literal sense, March the 25th is connected to the 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 the, the year uh, the, the the Earth revolving around the sun. 
and what have you. So you know, obviously, at the, right at the beginning of creation, there is no sun. And then presumably if there is no sun and no earth, there's no master 25th. So uh, I, I'm sort of looking at, I'm assuming this is just symbolically figurative and we're not supposed to take it literally. Well, that is true, but it's also the case that uh, there was some argument in favor of March 28th being uh, the first day because that was when the sun was created on the fourth day of creation, you know. Right. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's all, we, we don't know what day was created on. We don't even know what day Mary conceived or what day Jesus was born, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, well, one of a book by Mikhail Hesemann called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and it seems likely that the actual birth date of Christ is probably in the spring sometime because the shepherds are on the fields. Right, you taking know. their flocks toward Jerusalem for the Passover, and so and so. It you know what's amazing to me the richness of creation, the richness of God's word, making creation. You can find meaning everywhere and everything. You can find links to things no matter where you look. You know, I mean, it's almost like you can't go wrong. March twenty fifth, December twenty fifth. I mean, you'll find links to things yes. that are there that you can put together. Yeah, it's so Christ's birthday, you can imagine that the disciples, the apostles, would actually know Christ's birthday. Um, you know, where it was obviously, you know, if, irrespective of whether it is December the 25th, that the point is that that's a, that's a historically verifiable fact that you can imagine, you know, that the, the apostles might have known and might then therefore passed it on. Um, whereas obviously the date on which the cosmos is created by God the Father is a whole different yeah. ballgame. That's what that's what I'm trying to say. Really, is that it's not historically verifiable, uh, nor is it nor is it cosm- cosmically possible for you know for us to measure in terms of 24 hour days before the sun and the earth are, are created. Therefore, well, this even, is the a, days, even the days of creation is a symbolic. Thing. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That's what, that's what I'm trying to say is that this is obviously the whole thing is symbolic. symbolic. Yeah, Not I, yeah, the yeah. creation, of course. But... God's cosmic days of creation, each one of them could be a billion years. I mean, that, that's no. the figurative language of Genesis. That's fine. I have no problem with that. I just want to distinguish between the two. That's all. And maybe you brought up this thing that everything has meaning. Did we discuss Thomas Howard's book, Chance of the Dance? Yes. It was one of our early oh, books one of our early on books. Phone Book Club. Because that, that's a wonderful book I'll recommend again. Uh, but he, he shows this, uh, the dichotomy really between pre-modern culture and post-modern culture, or modern and post-modern culture, that with the age of science, where you learn things by dissecting and breaking them into their parts, uh, in material causes only, in efficient causes, I mean, nothing means anything. I mean, we're just a bunch of molecules if it's dissected us and so on. Whereas prior to that, everything was symbolic, you know, not just turtles all the way down, but I mean, it was that the lion, you know, was somehow connected to the king. Uh, and the lamb was somehow connected with people who were meek. And so he summed it up by saying, in the new enlightened view nothing means anything in the old pre-scientific view everything means something that it's all connected you know 
Anyway, you just reminded me of that, mm-hmm. that beautiful book that we, we discussed, mm-hmm. although I forgot it. All right. Um, page 122. Towards the bottom, Jerome, in the ser- sermon, says, this has to do with Christmas. The universe itself bears witness of the truth of our words. Up to this day, the dark days increase. From this day, the darkness decreases. Well, he's, he's, he's four days off, but I mean... Okay, speaking of the winter solstice. Right, the light advances while the night retreats. And then, interestingly, also with the symbolism here on the next page, about eight lines down, between the two feasts of March 25th, the, the incarnation, and the December 25th, the birth, comes the feast of the forerunner, St. John the Baptist, on June 24th at the time of the summer solstice. Again, three days off, but I mean... The link between the dates can now be seen as a liturgical and cosmic expression of Baptist words. Mm-hmm. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a beautiful idea that you celebrate John the Baptist in the middle of June when the, it's the longest day of the year and the days become to decrease, decrease, decrease until Christmas. All of a sudden, Christ is born and now the light increases again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I highlighted that as well. So that, was, that, was, that was a fascinating observation by, uh, by Ratzinger. Mm-hmm. Then page 124, maybe eight, nine lines down. The narrative of the adoration of the Magi, which is a Christmas event, became important for the Christian thought because it shows the interconnection. Boy, when he uses that word, you know this is something important. Between the wisdom of the nations, because the Magi represented the Gentiles, and the word of promise in Scripture because it shows how the language of the cosmos and the truth-seeking thought of man Lead to Christ. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of saying that it's the fusion of philosophy and theology, uh, based based yes. on reason, right? If they kind of yes. come together. Uh, and then finally, uh, he's talking about the feast of the saints in the middle of page one twenty-five to middle of that text. There, beautiful thought here. One might say that the saints are, so to speak, new Christian constellations. Mm-hmm. In which the richness of God's goodness is reflected. And that, that's a beautiful thought. There's a firmament, we look up, there's the sun, there's the moon, you know, there's there's Christ, there's the church. But now there's these stars, these constellations uh, that represent the, you know, the brightness that is given to the cosmos through the lives of the saints. And that uh, reminds me of a book, which I believe, we, we published the Fisherman's Net by Adrian Horsepire. The fishing nets? No. Well, we have not. Oh, we have to. Because, oh, glad because, to hear that. Because that, Adrian from Spire, who was the directee of von Balthasar, um, mm-hmm. and a mystic, he thinks, and I believe he's right, at one point, uh, she had this vision of just numbers going up, you know, like like, like little bingo balls, you know, in the 21, you know, 136, uh, 51, 52. And so she write them down and she will say, and she had, you know, it was everything, everything equal 153. You know, this number plus that number is 153. That number plus this number is 153. And she, she didn't know what it meant. And Balthus says, well, you know, I want you to go into under penis. I want you to go into to meditation now and, and find out what that means. Well, uh, <clears throat> the interpretation that she got in prayer was that, of course, 153 is the number of fish in the net. That's the fisherman's net, which represents the catch, you know, uh, all the people are redeemed. But then all these numbers were prime numbers. That is, you know, five is a prime number, 13 is a prime number, and 20, uh, 20, no, 
29 is a prime number. Anyway, so uh, it, it turned out that each of these prime numbers represented a saint, but not just a saint, a saint who fit into this constellation of saints in some kind of a paradigmatic or archetypical way. And so 13, for example, was was uh, Ignatius's number, you know. 11. He's 11. Well, I'm sorry, 11. You're 13 is Francis, I think, you know. Yeah. Francis is 17. Oh, 17. Who's 13? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Thomas. Jacoby is our, not just our technical support here. He's also uh, our my corrector, my admonitor. But in any event, uh, when she described these other saints, uh, it might be that 11 plus 17 plus something, well, this saint manifested in his life the obedience of Ignatius and love of poverty of Francis. And so she saw the other saints as being kind of combinations of previous saints. It's an interesting, anyway, it's uh, maybe just a, a little spiritual game, but it's interesting. So you know something? Uh, we're about a half hour into this now. Mm-hmm. It's a good place to stop because we finished section two, mm-hmm. part two, and we'll start with part three on the next section, art and liturgy. And this is this chapter, the question of him is so beautiful because at the end, he actually goes through the periods of Christian art uh, in the West, Romanesque, Gothic, Baroque, Renaissance, contemporary, and he shows the strengths and weaknesses of them Pretty fascinating. Well, we'll see you next session to discuss that. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.